0: Pamela Banos, and this is the final chapter of My Dear Alice, where we will learn of the remaining biographies of the correspondents who filled in details of Alice's life while offering a portal into the culture of the late 19th century.
1: My dear, my, dear my dear Alice, my dear Miss Austen, my, dear my dearest Lolly, my dear Miss Austen, my dearest love.
0: Chapter 10. During the decade of the teens, when Alice Austen and Gertrude Tate spent summers traveling through Europe, Alice's correspondence lives changed also. Even earlier, some of them were the victims of illnesses and war. Mr. Gregg, once Trude Eccleston's fiancé, perished in a battlefield of the 1898 Spanish-American War. In 1899, 28-year-old Effie Emmons Alexander died after a prolonged illness. Also in 1899, Effie's sister-in-law, Lou Alexander Richards' husband died, leaving her with two young children. Lou remarried within a year, had another baby, and then that husband died two years later, leaving her twice widowed with three children at the age of 34. And during those first years of the new century, other life-altering shifts would unfold. Julia Martin continued at her boarding house venture after recovering from surgery for chronic appendicitis. That same year, she bought a corner property where she moved her business, and in the following year, she bought the adjacent lot. In 1899, a local newspaper reported that Julia, her brother Walton, and their aunt Adelaide were together in Los Angeles. Apparently, Walton Martin was there to deliver their mother's sister to Santa Barbara. The 1900 census shows 34-year-old Julia her 47-year-old aunt, and a 40-year-old Chinese cook named Sing, who had been with Julia for at least four years.
1: It is Sunday 3 p.m. and I, as usual, am keeping house. Aang, my houseboy, has gone to Sunday school, being a Christian. Sing, being a heathen, has gone to Chinatown for a good time. My housekeeper is off for the afternoon, and so you see I am quite alone, and the house is delightfully
0: quiet and restful. A newspaper article from 1902 notes Julia visiting Los Angeles, and later that month she was at a resort near Lake Tahoe. In November, it was reported that she hosted a luncheon at a posh restaurant in Santa Barbara. And then, after spending several weeks in Boston, she was on a steamship off Los Angeles. Just a few months later, a New York newspaper reported that Julia was visiting her father in Albany. And then, the unimaginable... In my tracing of her whereabouts, the 1905 census locates Julia in the Bloomingdale Hospital for the Insane in White Plains, New York. When I told this story to a friend of mine, they responded, did she have a family member that was a doctor? And of course, there was Julia's brother Walton, the famous New York surgeon, who also delivered Aunt Adelaide to California. A newspaper article reported at one point that of the 535 patients treated for mental diseases in Bloomingdale Hospital, 419 were committed involuntarily. I dug deeper to try to make sense of this and found that Aunt Adelaide was chronically ill with tuberculosis. In early 1902, Julia had petitioned for and was appointed as Adelaide's legal guardian. Soon thereafter, a court order directed a sale of her aunt's personal property. And this is when it looks like Julia went on some sort of wild spree, entertaining at posh restaurants and traveling to resorts. I don't want to jump to conclusions, but the reports of her excursions occur simultaneously with the legal activities. In the middle of 1903, it was reported that Julia was visiting her father in Albany. She never returned to Santa Barbara. There is an empty envelope at the Alice Austin House with a May 1904 postmark from White Plains that suddenly and tragically made sense. But I'm heartbroken to not have Julia's letter to Alice that might shed some light on what happened. She was still at the Bloomingdale Asylum in the 1910 census and in 1915 and in 1920. Her Aunt Adelaide died in 1913 in Santa Barbara, She had a will in which she left the bulk of her sizable estate in trust to Julia. Julia's brother Walton became Julia's guardian, and there was also a guardian assigned to Julia's estate in California, who at Adelaide's death sold her Santa Barbara house. By 1925, she had been transferred to another New York asylum called the Long Island Home in Amityville. Julia Tabor Martin died there 12 years later in 1937, when she was 71 years old. She had spent half her life in these places. It is really very tragic, terribly devastating, shocking, and disturbing. There's no other known evidence linking Julia with Alice, but I'd like to think that they were still connected, and I shudder to think that Julia's example contributed to others keeping their personal lives in even lower profile. It did dawn on me that maybe Julia was with someone during that extravagant year before she was committed. And maybe it was a woman. Which brings us back to Daisy Elliott. Ship manifests show Daisy returning to Europe every year from 1900 through 1910. It's sometimes hard to track who she's traveling with, but the name Leone Stamm shows up several times. Stamm was famous in New York for teaching fencing to ultra-wealthy women. Like Julia Martin, Daisy also has a baffling pivotal event. In 1911, when she was 54 years old, and while visiting her family's ancestral town in England, Daisy Elliott married a man. A widower from Massachusetts and the father of four grown children, Frederick Fostick had been the mayor of the town of Fitchburg, having run on the Prohibition Party ticket. Upon her return to the States, Delia Marie Elliott disappeared on the ship manifest, replaced as Mrs. Frederick Fostick. It was her last time abroad as a married woman, and she moved from New York to Fitchburg, Massachusetts. The marriage ended 13 years later when Mr. Fostick died. Daisy was 67 years old and a wealthy widow. The following year, she got back on a steamship for Europe, traveling with Caroline Lawrence the same Miss Lawrence with whom she bicycled across the Alps in 1897. They would return to Europe together every year for the next 11 years. In 1936, at the time of their last voyage together, Daisy was 79 and Miss Lawrence was 84. Caroline Lawrence died the following year. Daisy lived on for 14 more years, dying in 1951 at the age of 94.
1: I'm rather dependent on my independence, after all. Yet most everyone thinks I am so self-reliant. You know as well as anyone the true fact of the case, don't you, you poor dear?
0: Obviously everybody dies in this story, and death is always sad. But all lives can be celebrated, especially if they weren't conventional ones. Julie Brett and Bessie Strong never married. Here's Bessie, at age 29.
1: You can scarcely turn a corner without running up against an engaged person these days. I never knew such a state of things before. I am to have another chance to be bridesmaid. This will make the third time, but it does not worry me at all.
0: In 1905, at the age of 40, she was still living with her parents in their massive New Brunswick, New Jersey home. Bessie's father was an esteemed judge, and she had three brothers who were attorneys, one who would serve as a state senator. Bessie was also active in politics, and as mentioned early on, she was fond of telling Alice about the gifts she received. Here she is in a letter from 1892.
1: The wretched Democrats are having a parade downtown, and the drums are beating furiously, all of which is calculated to rile an ardent Republican like myself, So if my letter is incoherent, it is attributable to the Democrats. They are responsible for a great deal of cussedness in this world anyway. I have been almost heartbroken over the election. Now I am trying to smile and smile and make believe I don't care, but oh, I do. Perhaps you may be interested to know what my birthday presents were. From mother, I had some evening gloves. From father, some money, which I invested in music. Theodore gave me an album for mounting photographs. Miss Van Rensselaer, a pretty little basket from Nassau. Helen's present was a bonbon dish. Etta's, an exquisite copy of Hyperion. My sister-in-law, such a pretty Japanese table cover, pale blue, worked in gold. And from Miss Dayton, a Colombian exposition souvenir spoon. I think I was quite a lucky girl.
0: Her brother Theodore, who she mentioned, would become the Republican senator. He married Miss Van Rensselaer, who gifted the pretty little basket. They ended up having eight children, including six sons, all of whom became lawyers. Theodore and his large family moved into the family home and named it the Stronghold. Bessie moved out and lived alone, remaining in New Brunswick for the rest of her life. She died in 1952 at the age of 86. Her obituary noted her as having been one of the board members of a local nursing home that pioneered a home environment like today's assisted living facilities. She was also president of the Visiting Nurse Association, which was active during the First World War. Her yearly president reports are as thorough as her letters to Alice Austin. I have little doubt that if Elizabeth Briard Strong had been born one or two generations later, she would have been a successful attorney like her father, brothers and six nephews, and she'd likely have been a successful politician whose name would be familiar today. Speaking of famous people, Julie Brett is vicariously connected to one. In early 1894, she wrote,
1: We've been looking at a house in Llewellyn Park, and I rather think we shall decide on it, though we should not occupy it until August sometime.
0: Two years later, it was reported that Julia's mother gave a tea for 200 guests at her home, the Pines, in Llewellyn Park, noted as the first planned community in America. Inventor Thomas Edison's house and factory were down the block from the Bretts' house. Julia remained in Llewellyn Park for the rest of her life, residing there with her younger sister Ernestine to the end. Of those 50-odd years, at least 20 of them were sandwiched between Thomas Edison and his phonograph factories. Edison died in 1931. Julie Brett became a champion golfer. Her name begins appearing in newspapers in 1907, and her appearance in golf tournaments continued being reported on through 1938, when she was nearly 70 years old. Brett was also a gifted artist. One of her scrapbooks was acquired by the Alice Austin House found in a West Hampton, New York, bookshop 10 years ago. Julia Frederica Brett died in 1949, just shy of her 80th birthday. And so now it's time to return to Violet Ward,
1: Maria Emily Graham McKnight Ward,
0: and her sister Carrie.
1: Caroline Costantia
0: Ward. Violet actually shows up in some of the same newspaper articles with Julie Brett. They competed against each other in golf tournaments. But Violet and Carrie show up in the area newspapers for other reasons also. In 1914, a notorious public proceeding shows Violet on the witness stand defending her competency to maintain her estate, which had been put in trust to a bank. The Ward sisters had taken separate apartments in Manhattan, away from Oneata, the family grounds on Stanton Island. Violet stayed on the Upper West Side at 86th Street, and Carrie moved into the National Arts Club in Gramercy Park. In 1911, Violet moved back to Oneata permanently, and Carrie returned in 1917, after seven years in Gramercy Park. It was while the sisters were separated that their estate was turned over to a trust, They were reported to have inherited several hundred thousand dollars from various family members, worth more than six million dollars today. In 1913, they had modified the Oneata grounds to include a Montessori school and had started placing ads advertising a little colony of bungalows for university graduates and others of culture, and board for a limited number in a fine old mansion, use of a tennis court and use of a 40-foot sailboat, and automobile for tenants who cooperate with upkeep. The ad sounded like Violet wrote it. In 1915, the trust company was concerned that Violet would spend beyond her allowance, incurring debts that would complicate the trust. She had just bought a new Model T Ford. A newspaper more directly stated that the bankers said that Violet had delusions which indicated she was deranged. 52-year-old Violet was a witness on her own behalf, so it's anyone's guess why she thought it was a good idea to tell the story that she did. I won't go into too many details, but basically, Violet testified that when she was 12, her father had her married to an army officer because he had to attend to emergency business elsewhere, and it would put her in the care of the US government. Beyond that, she explained that her father had them go into a tent where he left them for two days, apparently to consummate the marriage. Further, she asserted that she had given birth to twins who had died at birth. When her sister Carrie took the stand, she said that she had never heard this story until four years ago, at which time she told Violet not to repeat it. A doctor representing the bank testified that after examining Violet, it was his professional opinion that she was suffering from delusional insanity. However, the next day's newspaper headline stated,
1: Imaginary twins of war bride win over jury. Miss Ward's delusion does not make her incompetent. Staten Island verdict.
0: The next day, I don't know, maybe because she had an audience, Violet went further to say that she had been at the Civil War and that Carrie was not actually her sister. Violet was born in 1865, and Carrie was indisputably her sister. The doctor for the defense admitted that there were delusions, but said that they were mainly based on exaggerated ideas of her ancestry and were due primarily to extreme egotism. I mean, I'd buy that. Violet was declared sane, thoroughly competent, and able to manage her own affairs. It is not lost on me that at this point in 1915, Julia Martin had been institutionalized for more than 10 years, and this may go to show the power of money, if nothing else. Violet and Carrie remained at Oneata through the end of their years. Carrie appears to have lived adventurously for the next couple of decades, frequently traveling abroad and in 1931, embarking on an around-the-world cruise at the height of the Great Depression. She turned 67 during that five-month jaunt. More than 30 years earlier, Violet had written to Alice.
1: Carrie is away, and I hope we'll stay away for some time.
0: They came to be known as Staten Island's eccentric sisters. Athlete, author, and inventor, Maria Emily Graham McKnight Ward died of a cerebral hemorrhage in 1941, just shy of her 78th birthday. Caroline Costantia Ward died six months later of ovarian cancer at the age of 76. Later in 1942, their home and its contents were sold at auction. The 1915 Model T Ford was still in the garage. In 1949, Wagner College purchased the Oneata Grounds, for 35 years, the Ward Mansion was home to the college's music department. The choir practiced in the ballroom at the top of the main staircase that Alice Austin photographed in 1897. The staircase that everyone said Violet had fallen down that led to her death, some insisting that Carrie had pushed her. A student paper titled Rumors of the Ward House explored tales of paranormal activity. The house was sealed in 1983 and was torn down ten years later. The college football stadium now occupies the site adjacent to the women's sports field. It was just as Oneata was closed down in the mid-1980s that clear comfort reemerged from its own harrowing spiral. Which leads us back to Alice Austin. We left off in the first decade of the 20th century with Alice and Gertrude Tate's yearly excursions abroad. These were the best years. In 1903, in France, Alice and Gertrude appear in a rowboat, with Alice standing, steering with one long oar, and Gertrude smiling broadly at whoever took the photo. In another picture, taken by Gertrude from her seat, Alice faces her, smiling, while rowing with both oars. Gertrude is the object of Alice's gaze throughout. Here is the great love story of this podcast. There's Gertrude Tate sitting at a Parisian cafe. There she is on a donkey being led on a mountain trail. There's Alice standing over her on a terrace at morning tea. There she is leaning out a second-story window, smiling at Alice, and under a tree amongst a picnic spread. And there she is again in Paris in a horse-drawn carriage, The roof overloaded with steamer trunks. One with EAA, Alice's initials, stenciled onto it. The carriage door reading in French, Etat, Tate, spelled backwards. Alice Austin and Gertrude Tate spent three to four months a year traveling overseas throughout the decade. Mid-decade, Austin's photography was mentioned in a newspaper article titled Women of Society in Trade. And she made more quarantine photographs for Dr. Doty, two of which were featured on the front page of the New York Tribune. And Gertrude Tate was teaching dancing classes. But none of this alone would support their lavish vacations. Gertrude's family was said to have had and then lost money. Alice had the support of family inheritance. Her mother left her a sizable estate, and earlier her grandmother left her all the money she had deposited into banks, the interest of which could provide income. There's a document in the archive that lists five bank accounts, each with a $3,000 balance, and each showing the collected interest sums. During the first decade of the 20th century, and well into the 19-teens, Gertrude remained living with her mother and younger sister in Brooklyn, even while she spent more and more time with Alice. Gertrude Tate's sister, Winifred, was 17 years younger than her, and it seems that Gertrude was expected to help support their family. Many years later, Winifred said that her family felt that Alice had absorbed Gertrude, and she said they felt that there was a wrong devotion on both sides. A wrong devotion. It's no wonder that these women stayed on Staten Island. In 1910, Uncle Oswald and Aunt Minnie still lived upstairs at Clear Comfort, and three live-in maids remained in residence. Oswald Otto Miller died at the end of 1912, just weeks after Alice and Gertrude returned from Germany, Sweden, and Denmark, including a visit to Copenhagen, his birthplace. It would be their last trip abroad for more than 10 years. Alice and Gertrude's circle of friends had shifted and they were spending time in the company of more wealthy friends, participating in lavish parties and automobile excursions to Long Island and up the Hudson Valley. Alice drove a Franklin automobile, today an obscure brand, but then a luxury car made in New York, and she carried her own tools. Austin continued to copyright her photographs and in 1911 four of her pictures illustrated a newspaper article titled Makeshift Photography for a series called A Page for Misses with a photo credit that called her Miss Alice Austin. Her photographs showed makeshift ways of doing photography Like tying a camera to a tree and putting it on a pile of books if there was no tripod. And again in 1912, with five photos of Clear Comfort's front yard, her work illustrated an article called The Winter Garden Club for Girls. These syndicated features appeared in newspapers from New York to San Francisco. That article, which talked about how to form a garden club, may have inspired Austin. The following year, she founded the Staten Island Garden Club. By the mid-19-teens, Alice was crazy for gardening and automobiles, and Gertrude was becoming prominent as a dance instructor who also organized afternoon tea dances, known as tea Dançants. In the same newspaper, from one paragraph to the next, Alice was mentioned as hosting the first garden club meeting, and then Gertrude's tea dansante was noted as an upcoming event. The following week, she hosted 200 dancers at the Heights Casino in Brooklyn. The Garden Club expanded to include an antiquarian society. Together, they opened a tea house at the old Perrine House, the club's 17th century headquarters. A fundraiser was held to raise money to purchase the house, and it was reported to have been brought to a close by a grand march and butterfly dance led by Miss Gertrude Tate. They were constantly listed in the society pages as being at all sorts of events. In 1917, Gertrude finally moved into clear comfort. She took an upstairs bedroom, down the hall from Auntie Min. There were still two live-in maids. Gertrude was now 45, and Alice 51. They had been together for nearly 20 years. They were now spending time with the wealthy Jesse Vanderbilt Simmons, who threw extravagant costume parties, in which Alice consistently dressed in drag, wearing a Van Dyke beard. Just months after that party, World War I began, and the women went to work. Jesse Simmons was active with the Red Cross, and Alice Austin had initiated driving classes. She was later said to have organized four classes of 100 or more women to study to become ambulance drivers and mechanics as part of a motor corps that would travel overseas. Austin had always photographed passing ships from Clear Comfort's front lawn. Her photos from this period show an inventory of war vessels, along with her meticulous notations. One says, Troops and nurses on a transport pass the house very fast at 1.30. We displayed the flag and they cheered. There are photographs of Gertrude Tate waving an American flag at passing vessels. Austin recorded so many ships coming and going that they serve as an extensive record of the time. Auntie Min died in April 1918 at the age of 77. Minnie Austin Hicks Miller left everything she owned to Alice. Clear Comfort was to be Alice Austin's house for as long as she chose to live there. In 1920, Alice bought a new Franklin car, and she and Gertrude appeared together in New York Social Register. Her petition to build a landing pier in front of Clear Comfort was denied, but in 1922, Alice was among those who purchased apartments in a new building on Lexington Avenue in New York City. She listed her residence as the Colony Club, a private women's club. That same year, she and Gertrude and another woman opened a gift shop by the Staten Island Ferry Terminal. Things had calmed down a bit as the 1920s were coming to a close. Alice was active with the Garden Club and Gertrude with her dancing activities. Austin hosted what she called a Wisteria Tea Party to celebrate the blooming of her beloved Wisteria vine that had now wrapped onto the house. She'd photographed it for 40 years its roots now appeared to be growing down into the house's cellar. The New York Evening Post reported that the magnificent wisteria covered one side of the house and was more than 100 years old. Alice once posed in costume as some sort of wizard standing next to her beloved wisteria vine. It was now the end of the 1920s, and everything was about to change. I've been saying from the beginning that Austin was evicted from her home, but I haven't mentioned that things got so bad that she ended up in the poorhouse, what was called the New York City farm colony. The rest of this story is a roller coaster ride. There are many versions of the story as to how Alice Austin lost clear comfort. The version that makes the most sense, because it was relayed while she was still alive, states that Alice had hired a financial advisor three years before the 1929 stock market crash, giving over her assets in exchange for ongoing payments of a percentage of its value. This had been going fine until the market crashed. It seems that the finance man had been borrowing on her funds and lost all of it with the collapse of the market. In 1931, Austin took out a mortgage on Clear Comfort. All associated papers related to this next horror are part of the Jesse Vanderbilt Simmons archive at Duke University. During that same year, a series of newspaper articles detailed a plan to build a transportation tunnel. The tunnel would emerge at the site of Alice Austin's house. In a series of letters from state officials, attorneys, and her title company, Austin is informed that despite her grandmother's original surveys and deeds, She does not own the riparian rights in front of Clear Comfort. The land extending beyond the shore into the narrows belonged to the state of New York. Then, talk changed to plans for a connecting ferry service that would dock at the front of her house. Austin was told that she might be able to buy the water rights to avoid their sale to a ferry company. Alice appealed to her cousin, attorney William Wheelock, Aunt Sarah Ann's grandson, but he was on holiday in Europe. The attorney who did sign on to help suggested that she sell Clear Comfort. She would not. The conversations continued through the end of 1931 and included the suggestion that perhaps the house could be moved to another location. Then the communications come to a complete halt. I can't help but think that Jessie Simmons had something to do with it since these letters are with her papers. Ultimately, there would be no tunnel or ferry dock. And the Verrazano Bridge, which currently joins Brooklyn with Staten Island, a ways south of Clear Comfort, was not built until 1959. Alice Austin's financial troubles deepened, and she began selling antiques and furniture. The 1810 vintage Duncan Fife sofa that belonged to her great-grandparents while they lived on the Bowling Green was put up for auction. It brought $1,400, a huge sum that Austin undoubtedly used to help dig herself out of debt. Another cousin, Rogers Winthrop, the grandson of her aunt Mary Austin Townsend, responded to some questions with a letter that began, I am sorry to say that I have not any good news for you. Alice was looking for someone to lend her $5,000 against her home. Winthrop mentioned hearing that the house could be used as a tea house or a restaurant, and closed with his regrets that he could not help her. At the end of 1934, the same day that Alice utilized a new bankruptcy clause filing for an extension on her debts, a bank bought clear comfort in foreclosure proceedings. Inexplicably, two days later, Alice sent Jesse Simmons a telegram saying, Appreciate kindness, foreclosure stopped. Simmons was staying at the Imperial Hotel in Vienna and although it appears that the foreclosure went through, Alice was allowed to remain rent free at Clear Comfort. So maybe that's why she thanked Jesse Simmons. Alice and Gertrude Tate did end up opening a tea house at Clear Comfort, serving lunch on the front lawn. In 1937 and in 1941, The New Yorker magazine mentioned it in reviews, as did Vogue magazine in 1941. The chief attraction was the view from the front lawn. By this time, Alice was 75, and Gertrude was 70. Alice Austin never stopped photographing, and in the 1930s she had begun making short 16 millimeter films at clear comfort. We see ships passing, tables on the front lawn, short clips of her beloved Franklin car, and lots of footage of her cats, and her wisteria vine. And we see Gertrude with her dancing teacher colleagues who came to visit. In one delightful set of film clips, two smiling men walk Gertrude up Clear Comfort's front walk. Then they walk arm-in-arm with Alice from the same point. Then in a reverse cut, each of them walks back, flanked by Alice and Gertrude, all three smiling and laughing. These men were Lloyd Hyde and his partner Arvid Knudsen, gay antique dealers and interior decorators, both in their 30s. Hyde had auctioned the Duncan Fife sofa. Years later, Gertrude's sister, Winifred, offered that Alice and Gertrude had a separate gay life in which they socialized with Lloyd and Arvid and which they did not share with their Staten Island society circle. Austin started creating a photographic inventory of furniture and objects from the house, setting them outside to photograph them. The antique heppel white chairs from the dining room set, two silver candlesticks, objects she would sell for cash. Two giant links from the legendary chain that a Townsend ancestor's forge had made to draw across the Hudson, foiling incoming ships during the Revolution. They had always been mounted to the parlor's fireplace mantle. She documented the links and then they disappeared with the other things, as did the baby Grand Steinway piano. In 1941, a Fifth Avenue New York auction house advertised a big sale, including items from Austin's family. The auction catalog's cover page announced, Property of Miss E. Alice Austin, Clear Comfort, Staten Island, New York. The items included Japanese objects and vases from Aunt Minnie's travels, among other pieces seen in her photographs. Alice penciled the final prices in the page margins of the catalog, they did not fetch enough to make a difference. Austin also began suffering from a debilitating arthritis that would soon force her into a wheelchair. There are some very sad letters imploring Rogers Winthrop to help her, and he did continue sending small sums of money. But in 1944, the bank trust that owned Clear Comfort sold the house to a local Staten Island family, the Mandias, for $7,500, and the new owners would soon begin eviction proceedings, giving Austin and Tate 90 days to pack up and leave. In August, someone put up a for sale sign. This turns out to have been illegal and triggered an action to help Alice and Gertrude stay. The new owner had acquired the place with the stipulation that they would live in the house. The Associated Press reported in stories that appeared coast to coast with headlines including... Woman in home 78 years spared from eviction. Spinster once offered $100,000 for Staten Island House, saved by OPA rule. The articles detailed the house's history long known as the Old Austin Homestead and told of Austin's struggles, the Tea House, and one also mentioned that she She and
1: Miss Tate, a companion of her own age who lives with her, were able to lead the peaceful lives they wanted, remaining in the old house living quietly with their memories.
0: There is mention that Alice Austin had been one of the first women tennis players, but there was no acknowledgement of her as an important photographer. Within weeks, Alice and Gertrude had taken in two boarders, a husband and wife, he being a medical student. So at least they had some help and company. Then a storm caused a tree to fall on the house, destroying the porch where Auntie Min had spent her days. The boarders moved out and then the Mandias decided that they wanted to move into their house and the eviction process began again, initiating a frenzy of activity. Alice Austin was a classic hoarder. There are oral histories that convey that her bedroom was piled ceiling high with newspapers. In addition to the antiques and collections gathered by her family over the years, she didn't throw anything away. And that is one reason why we have this story to tell. Gertrude and Alice had people helping them empty the house, and members of the Staten Island Historical Society arrived to see what could be of value, discovering photographs and glass plates that they hauled out box after box. They worked as fast as they could because in her haste, Alice had sold the contents of the home to a furniture dealer for $600, and he would soon arrive to empty the rest of the house. Aspects of the story fall apart here, with the byproduct being that thousands of negatives went missing. The women moved into an apartment building called the Wisteria. Then, when Gertrude could no longer care for Alice, she went to the Mariner's family home that took her in because of Uncle Oswald's maritime connection. Gertrude moved in with her sister Winifred in Jackson Heights, Queens, but handled the loan agreement of Alice's materials to the Historical Society. This remaining part of the story alone could be its own podcast, so many are the details that I will gloss over. After the Mariner home, and a couple other places, Alice Austin was declared a pauper and was moved into the New York City Farm Colony, the poorhouse that was located on Staten Island. As part of the process, Alice had signed everything over to Gertrude. The Historical Society would pay her $50 for the title to all of Austin's photographs. They had now been sitting in the Society's basement for five years. Within days of that transaction, C. Copes Brinley, a curator there, had begun contacting area museums. The New York Public Library thanked him for the print donation. Brinley wrote to the George Eastman House, the New York Historical Society, the Library of Congress, and the Museum of the City of New York, asking if they'd be interested in purchasing Alice Austin's negatives. They were all interested and began a series of correspondences. Brindley then wrote to every conceivable magazine and New York newspaper, offering them exclusive rights to publish Austin's 1890s street-type portraits, leading to another series of correspondences. And he wrote to the Marine Historical Association and the Smithsonian Institution, inviting them to review Austin's ship photographs. Around this time, a random occurrence changes the course of the story again. I did say this would be a roller coaster ride. At the end of December 1950, when Alice Austin marked five months in the poorhouse, a letter arrived at the Historical Society from a researcher named Constance Folk. It began I'm preparing a picture book dealing with the changing status of women in America from 1880 until the present day. She was querying local archives for unpublished photographs and she landed on a gold mine. The book publisher, a photo editor named Oliver Jensen, picked it up from there. Jensen recognized Alice Austin's value, both as a resource for historical photos as well as her worth as a trailblazing photographer. It was only after a couple of meetings while he was asking about the people in the photographs that he was told that Austin was still alive and he could visit her in the poorhouse. Brinley's communications with museum and magazine people did not lead anywhere. Nobody was more interested in Austin's photography than Oliver Jensen, who was well-connected and saw her as a cross between Matthew Brady and Grandma Moses, as he says in one of his letters. And he described her as about to burst onto the scene as a result of his efforts. Jensen wanted to publish her photographs in his book, which would be called The Revolt of American Women. And he also pitched her story to Life magazine, who sent along Alfred Eisenstadt, the famous journalistic photographer best known for his VJ Day photo of a sailor kissing a nurse in Times Square. Glossing over the struggle between Brinley and Jensen to monetize and divide the proceeds from Austin's works, the effort was now on getting Alice out of the poorhouse, which happened in August. She had been there for a year. Gertrude Tate was ultimately the great negotiator in these efforts. She was there, steadfast, through every twist and turn of the last harrowing decade, and through all of everything from the previous 40 years. In the end, Alice Austin's photographs would be responsible for the relatively happy ending to this story. In September 1951, Austin was celebrated with a photo feature in Life magazine. There's Auntie Min holding one of the family cats, and Alice's mother in her fancy striped and polka dot dress, and Uncle Oswald on Clear Comfort's porch. There's Julia Martin and Mrs. Snively with Alice in bed, and the darned club, and Trude Eccleston with Alice performing their scandalous mask burlesque. There's Henry Gilman and Julie Brett playing cards with Alice, and there's Violet Ward with Daisy Elliott on her bicycle. And, of course, there's Alice Austin, perched on top of a fence, poised with her camera, photographing a car race with Gertrude Tate standing beneath her. In October, the Staten Island Historical Society proclaimed an Alice Austin Day and hosted a celebration in her honor. Life magazine was there again and published photos from that occasion in the next couple of weeks. Austin was interviewed on the radio amidst other excitement that unfolded. She was finally recognized for her groundbreaking photography, and Gertrude Tate was at her side. Elizabeth Alice Austin died in her sleep in June 1952. She was 86. Gertrude Amelia Tate died 10 years later, at the age of 91. In a diagram of the Austin family cemetery plots, Alice had Gertrude positioned alongside her. Alice's grave remained unmarked for 25 years, and Gertrude's family kept her remains in Brooklyn. It may still be feasible to return them alongside Alice. The space remains available. After Alice and Gertrude left Clear Comfort in 1945, the Mandia family stayed for 20 years. Subsequently, the house declined. Someone let a scrub tree grow against the front step. Stories of squatters and drug users further sullied the place. There was talk of building a high-rise in its place. In 1975, the city of New York took over the property. Then a group called the Friends of Alice Austin House was formed. In 1979, they made a historic structure report, and in 1983, an archaeological survey. In 1984, renovation work began, and the following year the work was completed. The house was rebuilt using Alice Austin's 19th-century photographs as reference. She had documented every part of it, inside and out. Even though it had many permutations throughout the years, it now looked the way it did when she made the work she is now best known for. As the house returned to its appearance from the 1890s, someone from the Mandia family returned to clear comfort, with four boxes of letters that had been found in an attic closet. They had arrived back at the place where they had originally been sent, to the house that again appeared as it had been. And so now we've come full circle, returning to the place where we began. This is a story of home, history, celebration, and reclamation. Clear Comfort, now known as the Alice Austin House Museum, sits on the bank of the Narrows with a sweeping view of the Manhattan skyline. Dating back to pre-revolutionary days, this modest cottage remains a century to our changing world. The Alice Austin House and grounds are owned by the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation, operated by the Friends of Alice Austin House, a nonprofit organization and a member of Historic House Trust. The Alice Austin House is a New York City and National Landmark on the Register of Historic Places and a member of the National Trust for Historic Preservation's distinctive group of historic artist homes and studios. In 2017, the designation was updated to become a national site of LGBTQ history. The Alice Austin House fosters creative expression, explores personal identity, and educates and inspires the public through the interpretation of the photographs, life, and historic home of pioneering American photographer, Alice Austin. This audio production was written and produced by me, Pamela Banos, and was presented in collaboration with the Alice Austin House Museum. The accompanying website, mydearalice.org, shows hundreds of photographs and documents that illustrate Austin's story, as told through her own photographs and the letters that she saved. This episode featured the following voice talent in their order of appearance. Liv Glassman, Kristen Wagner, Natalie Welber, Sydney Hastings-Smith, Madeline Bagnall, Maya Slaughter, Charlie Nicolini, and Jennifer Webster. Sound editor, Kendall Barron. Original music by Nicholas Rosa Palermo and me, Pamela Banos. Other music from Adobe Stock, Muse Open, and other attributed sources. Links are on the website that accompanies this podcast. That's mydearalice.org.